I remember um, when I was young, I went to uni in Brisbane, and what happened was I was, you know, I think I was 17 when I left Darwin, went on the plane, really, you know, it was really sad, leaving family and friends and all that sort of stuff, and heading over to Brisbane, and um, when I went there, I stayed with a family who had two boys who were just really into motorbikes, really into um, push bikes like BMX, amazing BMX races. They were also into cars, muscle cars and stuff like that. And one of them in particular I became friends with, his name was Dean. And he had down in the garage below the house a 65 and a half Mustang. So if anyone knows what that is, I didn't before I went there. <laughs> but, you know, we know what Mustangs are, guys um, and girls. They're a car that was like a muscle car, really really famous at the time. And when I went down to look at it, it was just a shell. There was really nothing to it. It was just basically the chassis and the body. And my job, as I got roped into, because I was a really poor uni student, was to help Dean restore it. So you know what it's like when you've got no money, you'd do anything for something. And I didn't get many treats. So what would happen was he'd say to me, all right, Neil, if you sand down this part of the car, basically the bare metal, which we didn't have to do, we found out later, thank you very much, um, I'll get you McDonald's. <laughs> and so I'd be there slaving away and then we'd go off and get a, get a hamburger. Um, I'm sure I was being ripped off when I look back at it, but the things we do, uh, mind you, they also used to get me to get icy poles for them from the shop and this is the deal. If you go to the shop, Neil, we'll shout you an icy pole. No worries. <laughs> Off I walked as a poor uni student. But as we worked on that car, it was just amazing the transformation that took place. Obviously, at some stage, that car was beautiful and new and shiny and had come off the production line and everything was perfect. But over the years, it changed and, and it wasn't what it was meant to be. And this morning, I'm hoping that... I want to start a series on cherishing, okay? And I want to do that next week and the week after, but I just want to sort of set it up in in a terms today of relationship between men and women. What What is that like? What should it be? Now, over this time, you might think, well, you know, I'm not, you know, married or, you know, I'm not even planning to get married or this might not be relevant to me. It's not relevant to my relationships at the moment. I'd say to you that it is. And God has a plan for all of us, and he had that plan in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And things were lost when sin entered the world. And, and part of that was the way that men and women relate to each other. It wasn't the way that God actually designed it. And, and so it is with that car too. As we worked on that car, it had a form of glory, but it lost it. The day that that car was made and came out, it was beautiful. It was, it was shiny. It had all the original parts on it and it worked. But then it had been, over the years, degraded. Things had happened. Basically, it would be like us without sin. and Sin in our life before Christ, that things just went bad. But Dean cherished this car. We spent hours and hours working on it. He spent more than me. But he'd, he'd go off to experts that would fix up the chairs um, or the seats that were in it. He'd actually go to America, get parts for it. He'd ride away and, and he'd find people that had the right part for that car, even down to the petrol tank lid and things like that, that everything would be back where it's meant to be. 
don't know if you've ever done that with anything in your life where you've grabbed something that was old and restored it and brought it back to originally how it was designed to be. But that's how God wants us to be in relationship with him and with other people. And in fact, the way he treated us in the beginning as human beings, as Adam and Eve were in that garden, that there was this amazing love that could flow. There was an ease of relationship. There was even an ease in the way we lived our lives. But then sin entered. And I really want to just read from Genesis chapter 3 first before um, we look at anything on the screen. And read about the curse that was actually placed at that time on humanity. Because it's really interesting to see the way that this has played out. So Genesis chapter 3, this is the first book of the Bible and it's the creation story. And what had happened? Sin had entered. Man and woman had been deceived by the serpent. And now God was pronouncing a punishment for what had happened. Firstly, he talked to Satan, the serpent. Then he started to talk to the woman. In verse 16, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you've listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains by the sweat of your brow you you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. So I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but that's pretty much the way it is in the world today, isn't it? But it's a result of a curse that, that had been placed on humanity. And one of those curses was here now that the woman and man relationship would change. You see, when God created female, he created her from Adam and he presented her to Adam. And Adam said at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then it was written that because that happened, the two should join and become one. Now in the Bible it will say that, you know, Adam had no helper, that he he needed a helper, and so Eve was made as a helper. That word helper is not what we consider someone subservient underneath us to do what we are. It is the exact same word that is used for God throughout the Old Testament as God is our helper. Now there's no way in the world that we would think that we are above God in any way. That, that that relationship is one where we dominate or have control of. And so it is in the beginning that that's the way it was. Man and women were created together, equally given authority in this earth, but because of sin that was taken off them. So what did it say there again to, to Eve? Besides the pregnancy and pain in birth, it says you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And so from that time on, there's this struggle between who's the boss, who's in charge, and why are we talking about this today? Because if we don't first of all start to recognise that God has made us all equal, not the same, but equal in his eyes, that we all are important to him, that we are all able to live and breathe and know the Spirit of God, that we were all able to get the spiritual gifts that we were all able to enter into relationship with him individually, we're going to make some mistakes in the way we view one another. Now, I was brought up in a a, um, 
a church, I guess, where it was very much what we're going to look at today, looking at the Ephesians 5 passage, which we'll look at in a minute. That there's this thing about man being the head of the house, which, you know, we're going to have to go through that to talk about it. What does that really mean? But what it meant was this, that the man had the final say in everything, that the man had the right to rule over the woman because that's the way it is. And there are some passages in the Bible, if you haven't been a Christian for long, you probably wouldn't even know about them. If you've never been a Christian, you'd be wondering in your head, what are they talking about? But many of us have been in church our whole life and we have this funny understanding and, and the words that used to come out from people were this, that the man is the spiritual head of the house. The spiritual head of the house. What does that mean? Well, Ephesians 5 talks about this and, and along with another passage in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 3 to 16, where it's talking about headship. So we need to really work out what is this saying? Is this really saying that man's the head? And what does spiritual head mean anyway? Does that mean that if any woman wants to get to God who's married, they have to go through me as a man and I'm the spiritual head? That possibly God couldn't speak to a woman except unless he speaks through me first. And then we have another problem. What if a woman's not married? Who's her spiritual head? There is only one spiritual head and that is Christ. He is the one who died for us. He is the one who brought us into relationship. And if we take a really big view of the Bible, which we have to do first of all, we start to see how God treated and respected women throughout life. His life was so contradictory to what was happening in culture at that time. But also how women were used in the Bible, in the New Testament, that they were deacons, that there's one named as an apostle, that there were women being called co-laborers with Paul, that women prophesied in church and prayed in church, that all these things happened and, and yet somehow we want to go back under a law and often it's this thing here, well, you know, that the woman, because of the curse, is now desiring this control, but she can't have it. But you see, the thing is about Jesus, he came to reverse the curse, didn't he? Jesus was called the second Adam for a reason, because God was saying, I want to re-establish the things that were in the beginning. Now, they're not going to be fully established now, but they are going to be fully established one day. And so what God is wanting to do is to lift up people in their worth. And why is this important when I talk about cherishing one another? Because if anyone, regardless of social position, race or gender, believes that they are superior to anyone else, that they have this more right to an access to God, then of course you're going to think wrong, aren't you? You're not going to value and honour someone who you think you're better than. And as much as we like to say, well, no, it doesn't mean we're better, but it just means we're the boss, what does that mean? I have a feeling that it means that we're worried about something called power in our life. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm just going to read through. I'm going to do it on here only because my computer's been out and all sorts of weird things happening and I'm hoping this works. Hallelujah. <laughs> so here we are. This is a passage that sometimes causes so much grief for people. 
especially when it comes to marriage. And the heading in this one here is Spirit-Guided Relationships, Wives and Husbands. So let's start reading it. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife must respect her husband. So if we're looking at this in the wrong way, we can get whatever we want out of it, right? And, and to be honest, some people will say, what I said this morning is wrong. That's okay. We're free to disagree. But the thing here is that this is not an unusual situation in the time that it is. So as Paul's writing this, this is actually the reality in the society that they live in. In the Jewish culture, the Roman culture, the worlds that were around then, that the, count, the um, contemporaries with Paul at this time would have written exactly the same thing and in fact they did. Because that's the way society was structured. There's further um, commands or things given to slaves and children after this in this passage as we go into the next chapter. But in this culture here, we had this, Jews hating Gentiles, masters oppressing slaves. We had um, men belittling and despising women. We had the Greeks who, who would make fun of the barbarians, that, that they were nothing. But in the early church, these things would be broken down. Things were starting to change. And women were not only starting to be treated with dignity like they'd never been treated before, and the fact that they were able to learn, even that, that they were able to work in the things of the gospel, that they were now regarded as equal. And not only women, but also slaves, were started to becoming equal with the people that they were working for, that they were bound to. So this was really common at this time. But this is some advice that's been given within this culture. Now, when we start to think about that and the way it was structured, this would be what it was like. As a husband of the house, I would sit down for my meal and I'd be sitting with the other guys the women would come in, serve, sit in silence at the base of the table and they'd be dismissed, get out. It's time for the real people to talk, the ones who are really, you know, the ones who should be in charge. But can you imagine a religion that has come into this place right now that is totally different, where Paul writes in other letters that there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Christ. Understanding that refers to salvation, 
But what it did was break down social barriers that had been the norm at the time. So all of a sudden it would be like we became Christians as a household and all of a sudden now I, as, as a slave, in Christ's eyes were equal. As we gathered together in worship, I was allowed to prophesy. I was allowed to give a word. I was allowed to sing a spiritual song. Can you see how different that is? What would happen when that was the case? That, that me as a man, my, my whole identity as being the master is being threatened here. I'm no longer seen in this situation as the boss. It'd be like us guys coming to church today and me getting up here and saying, righto, um, if you're a lawyer and you've done university, today you can speak about the things of God, but if you're a labourer, I'm really sorry, but your class is lower and therefore God can't talk to you. But he can talk through me. It's exactly what it's saying. Now, think about that in terms of my life and all of a sudden there's things happening and Paul's starting here to talk about the way things are changing. Now, none of us in our right mind would say slavery is a good thing, would we? Yet Paul addresses the slaves and masters in this same area of the Bible and saying, slaves, submit to your masters. Masters treat the slaves well. But over time we've seen that that is not what God wants. He doesn't want people in slavery and so he set them free. And it was the same with Jesus on earth. He was so controversial the way he treated women, which we're not looking at today. But it was a way that, that actually really offended other people. When Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well, the disciples came up to him and they didn't say, why are you speaking to a Samaritan? They said, why are you speaking to a woman? What is wrong with you, Jesus? And so when we look at it in that context, that, that all of a sudden there's this change, what's going to happen normally, the reaction that people have? Firstly, if I'm the one who's normally calling the shots, I'm going to react to that, aren't I? I'm going to start to come down on people. I'm going to start to go, well, I am the head. And we're going to look at that word head in a minute. But I'm going to start to try and dominate, to get my position back. What if I'm free? If I'm a lady or a slave, I'm starting to get rebellious. I'm starting to say, no, you're not. You're not my boss. And all of a sudden there's some order that is being undone. And so when Paul's writing this, I want you to really look at what he's actually asking from each person in this. What is he actually really asking? What does head actually mean? What does head actually mean? Because the way it's usually done is this. Head means boss, right? Head equals boss. But the word there in the Greek is actually kephal, K-E-P-H-A-L. It's very seldom used in Greek at all in anything, let alone the Bible, as someone who's the leader or the boss. What it actually is used for is to mean source. This is the source of. This is where it comes from. So think about even there when it talks about Christ and God. 
We know that there's a trinity happening, right? There's not a hierarchical thing there, but Christ came from God, didn't he? God is the source of Christ who came from to the earth. It's a source. Where does it come from? It is Christ as saviour, servant and source of salvation, not a master, that the way that it is written here. And when we understand that, that this is the source, when we start to look at that word as source rather than the boss, it changes everything. Have a think about the relationship that Jesus had with God anyway. The Bible says that Jesus Christ has been placed in authority because of the way he served that God lifted him up to the highest place and placed him in authority. What did Christ say about us, mankind? It says, We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And he said, I have given you the authority. So even if we follow that chain down, what does that mean with man? That we're meant to say, okay, it is no longer I who are above, but I'm lifting my wife into that same place. Because that's exactly what happened with the first two. God has lifted Christ to a place of authority. Christ has lifted man and woman to a place of authority. And it's the same with men. What are we meant to do? You see, the, the, the emphasis of this passage is not that someone is the boss. The emphasis of this passage, that is, if you are the head, the source, then you should be the servant of all. Have a look what it says to the man. For husband, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. When a man loves his wife, he actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. What does true love mean? If we think of it as Christ being the head, did Christ ever dominate us? Did Christ ever say that you can't have anything? Did Christ ever say any of that? He didn't. But instead it says he humbled himself and he came to serve and he even told his disciples that he said that if you want to be the greatest anyway, your job is to serve. Your job is to promote, lift up, encourage and love the other person. And in this passage it is a mutual submission that is happening. It's not a one-way thing, but a mutual submission. And really if we look at this, the centrality of the call in these passages is this. It is not a master servant thing is a mutual servanthood that we're looking at here. Now we know that within each family there's different ways of doing things so I'm not promoting that we all just do what we want. How could that possibly be anyway if we're serving one another in love? How could that possibly happen if we're both connected to God? But it is really disturbing to me when we see people elevating themselves above others, and I have to be honest, I've seen it a lot in my life as a Christian, where men honestly believe that they are more entitled than women 
for the grace and love of God. But they believe they are the ones that should hear the message for their family as if a woman can't hear from God because she's a woman. I remember hearing about the West in America and how it was won for Christ. You know, something like 80% of the people who started and pastored those church were women. 80%. And they went out and did what God asked them to do and then eventually they were told they can't do it anymore because they're women. And this is what often came out. I don't know if you've ever heard this said. But the only reason that God is using the women in the church is because the men don't stand up. Because if the men stood up, he wouldn't need to use women. When I say it like that, how does that sound to you, to your ears? Does it sound arrogant? Does it sound offensive? Well, probably not if you're a man. Because... Yeah, that's right. And I think it's time that we started to listen to the Spirit of God and look through the whole Bible, what God's Spirit has done, how he's used women, how he's valued women, because it's going to affect the next two weeks of what I preach about cherishing one another. Because that can only happen when we fully submit to one another and understand the value that we have in God. And if I was God, and if I was a lady, I'd be highly offended to be told that you're no longer needed. God doesn't want you anymore. And the way I think about it, even though this is probably going right over to the ditch, is basically going back to the old story of where God talked through a donkey to someone. And basically that statement says that, doesn't it? How can you possibly do the work of God that's a man's job it's only because we haven't been seeking God that God used you. But now, hallelujah, we're here to save the day. Now God can actually let me do what, you should, what I should have been doing and you can come and serve me. In reality, that's what it's saying, isn't it? I know that sounds harsh and offensive, but it's meant to you. Because if I was God, what I would say is, hallelujah, the men have stood up now, I've got twice as many people who are prepared to go and battle for my kingdom than I had before. I wouldn't take away anything. I would add two. And so I guess my heart breaks at times when I hear things like that because I know that God does not differentiate in the way he communicates with us. Your wife didn't get saved because you, as a man, prayed a prayer of salvation. She got saved because she understood God and the Spirit hit her heart and then she prayed and she got saved. And when we start to look at this cherishing one another, the moment that you think you are better than someone else, that you are more entitled than someone else, you will not be able to cherish them. If I think I'm better than someone else because of the job I hold, I will never cherish them. If I think I'm better than anyone else because of the colour of their skin, I will never cherish them. 
If I think that I'm better than someone else because I'm of a different sex, now that can be both ways, by the way. Where some women think they're better than men because they're women and that's the way it is. That's not what this passage is saying. Because it does still say that a wife must respect her husband. But as you go away this week, I'd like to think, you to think about it. Maybe this is challenging you. Maybe you don't agree with me. That's all great. But the reason that I want to bring this up today, there's a number of reasons. One is because of that series, but the other thing is just affirm that in this church we value women as being part of the body of Christ that are able to hear from him and they're able to preach the word. And it is the word that has authority in our life. And as it says at the end there, this is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. One. That they are joined together. They are joined together. And everything we are is because Christ has empowered us and graced us to be the best person that we should be and husbands should be exactly the same way. Wives should be exactly the same way with their husbands where no longer is it about you, but it's about how can this person become the best Christian, walking in the gift and calling that God has for them. And I remember one day I sort of had a bit of a revelation about that, not concerning this passage, but with my wife. (laughs) I don't know if she knows it or not. I actually had a revelation. But we'd been probably about maybe five or six years in the marriage. Good marriage. Great marriage, actually. Still is today. But there just seemed to be this point, you know, when I was living my life and doing what I did, and God just, I guess he just talked to me and he said, Neil, your wife's a person too. Well, what do you mean by that? (laughs) I knew she was a person. (laughs) But what he said to me was, she has dreams. She has hopes. She has visions from me. She has a call in her life and you need to recognise that. And though we support each other mutually in it, and I wasn't oppressing Joe in any way or anything like that, but it was just a wake-up moment to me to understand that God values every single person and he values them equally. And not only that, that he has a call for every single person. And it's not up to me as a husband to dictate to Joe what God asks her to do. She is special, she is loved by God, and God has a call on her life. But he has it on all of our life. And as we start to work together, as we start to cherish one another, and it will, even though we'll be concentrating on marriage, it covers all relationships over the next two weeks. How do we see people? How do we talk with people? What do we think of other people? Because there is a difference between love and cherish. If I love someone, it's a choice that I make to do, even if I don't want to. But when I start to cherish, it's like I'm polishing the gem that's there. And I'm understanding the beauty and worth that is in the people around me.